Welcome to a special Labor Day edition of the Faith at Work podcast. My name is Pastor Jim Melvin. This week's podcast is a bit different in that it's in the form of a story. It's about a story about where I learned some of my attitudes toward work. I hope you enjoy it. This story begins and ends with my father. It's not a dark story, as many are, of an absent or abusive father. My father was a good man. He worked hard every day, and he came home every night. He was a kind and gentle man. I can't remember him ever raising his voice to me, let alone his fist or even an open hand. Dad worked as a school custodian for over 40 years. Looking back, I would never say that he was just a custodian. For all those years, he nursed two crumbling brick buildings through their final years of service. He stoked their coal furnaces against the brutal Iowa winters. Every summer, he varnished their honey-colored hardwood floors and added new enamel layers to decades of gray lead paint on student chairs. He wiped noses and buckled boots of little kids who would return to greet him on their first visit home from college. They loved Mr. Melvin. He was a teacher among teachers. He was a father to many. His name was Emil, but those around him, those of us who knew him well, called him Mel. I never knew if that familiar name derived from Emil or Melvin. Those from southern Illinois, where he grew up, called him Bucky, a name which my mother hated because it originated in what she considered his degenerate youth, spent drinking moonshine alcohol and riding horses down the sidewalk on Main Street in West Frankfort, Illinois. He was 45 years old when I was born, with his Bucky days well behind him. I knew him as Mel, and I called him Daddy, until that felt childish and then he became simply dad. Only a few faded black and white pictures remained to give me a glimpse into the identity of Bucky, and even those, in actuality, reflect the Bucky-Mel transitional period since they were taken in Iowa after his marriage to my mother. In one picture, which today rests in a curio cabinet in our living room, he strikes a cocky, mobster-like pose with one foot on the running board of a Ford convertible. His shiny black curls spill onto his forehead, and he sports, yes, sports is the spot-on term, a double-breasted pinstripe suit. In my childhood, Mel wore a suit only for a few hours on the occasional Sunday we attended church to which he drove us in an aqua 1961 Chevrolet Biscayne with a stuttering six-cylinder engine and a three on the column. By 1963, the automatic transmission was the way to go. But for now, our family was constrained by a fiscal conservatism that limited his choice in vehicles. Mel dressed the rest of the time in a baggy khaki a uh, work suit, work pants with matching short-sleeved shirts purchased at Sears. 
The rare variation consisted of slightly darker khaki green work pants with a slightly darker green matching work shirt. By the way, khaki or slightly darker green, his clothes were always immaculate and neatly pressed thanks to my mother who enforced a certain Germanic order in our household. The other Bucky-esque portrait of my father finds him standing astride a burgundy-tanked Indian motorcycle with a suicide shift. I'm told that he owned a Harley at one point, but I've never seen a picture of it, just as I've never seen a picture of the saxophone, which he reportedly wailed on at one time in his life. Motorcycles and saxophones were so alien to the male of my recollections that I suspect a meteorite must have struck the earth around the time I was born and altered the fabric of history and morphed Bucky into Mel. I should mention one other element of Mel's style. His eyewear. He wore the iconic black Chiron Ronsier browline glasses. The revolutionary Chiron Ronsier developed in 1947 by Jack Rohrbach accounted for the vast majority of frames worn by nerdy engineers and businessmen of the 1950s. Today, they are worn mainly by stylish hipsters, waiters, and waitresses in urban restaurants. For Mel, the Chiron Ranzier was a choice born of function rather than style. The metal nose piece was infinitely adjustable, with a rusty pair of needle-nose pliers readily retrieved from his workbench, and he'd fashioned comfortable earpieces from the white insulation stripped from electrical wire. I wear the same glasses today, not out of any hipster pretense, but as an homage to Mel. Dad was a philosopher, pure and simple. His most productive hours of contemplation occurred early in the morning in the furnace room of Washington Elementary School, where he would sit smoking rocking comfortably in an ancient arm desk chair, which he'd rescued from a Washingtonian second-grade teacher years before. The smell of his fresh cigarette smoke blended pleasingly with the aroma emanating from heaps of shiny black coal in the nearby bin in the summer, and with the sulfurous smoke from the nearby furnace when it was burning and belching that same coal through the winter. Cole was a part of his life, of their life, both Bucky and Mel. He involuntarily carried a piece of it with him as a souvenir. He started working in the deep shaft mines under West Frankfort, Illinois, at 12 years old. A jagged chunk, which fell as a result of a methane explosion, knocked him unconscious and left him and a hundred other miners trapped underground for three days. His souvenir of that near tragedy was a BB-sized shard of bituminous embedded in his forehead above his left eye. That bluish speck was visible his whole life and always evoked in me images of the suffocating dangers threatening a mere child forced to work the deep mines in order to fuel the engine of American industrial growth. Dad welcomed my presence in his furnace room slash philosopher's den. 
Some early Saturday mornings, I would accompany him to work. By early, I mean 5, 5 a.m. My mother would send along an egg sandwich, served on white bread soaked with butter. I would unwrap the still warm delicacy from its protective wax paper while Dad went to the nearby lunchroom to retrieve a carton of chocolate milk from the cooler for me to drink. Free chocolate milk and an occasional ream of multicolored construction paper or a jar of paste liberated from the art supply closet were the slightly guilty perks of the job as custodian. Butternut coffee percolated noisily in a silver pot on the workbench from which he would pour cup after cup after cup of thick black intellectual fuel. Savoring the spongy egg sandwiches was the first order of business, satisfying the daily need for salt and fat, prepared the mind for serious matters under consideration. The rest, to quote the Jewish scholar Hillel, is commentary. But let me interrupt myself. My dad, I'm absolutely 100% sure, had never heard of the Jewish scholar Hillel. His formal education ended in the eighth grade with his descent into the mines. He would have received up to that point rudimentary training in reading, penmanship, and arithmetic, which makes this man's knowledge and wisdom even more extraordinary to me on a par with the likes of Abraham Lincoln, whose origins, come to think of it, were not far removed in time or place from Bucky Melvin. This is the miracle and mystery of education in simpler days. Considering the time and effort that have been exp expended on my formal learning, I feel small and inadequate, or spoiled. Could I have done what they did? Well, back to the philosopher's den. Dad employed two primary educational methods in my instruction. First, he related stories from his life, which I was to draw upon in my own moral, social, and philosophical uh, life, draw my own conclusions. His secondary method was expository, through which he shared the conclusions that he had drawn from his life experiences. In these lessons, he spoke humbly but authoritatively. He told me directly how he thought I should live my life. Oh, I should add a third teaching method. He taught by example. Many of his teaching stories came from his Bucky days or early Mel days. I guess they had to marinate in age to gain narrative perfection, not to mention that distance from the events is an excuse for embellishment. My remembrance of the, those stories is in the form of vivid images, many of which are gruesome. Bucky witnessed the labor disputes which erupted frequently in southern Illinois during the early 20s. I can still see him taking a sip of coffee as he prepared to launch into a recollection of one particularly violence-filled night. He described seeing the head of a scab at one of the mines being paraded down the dirt main street of Heron, Illinois, to the shouts and jeers of crowds. Mel bumps the ash from a cigarette. His brow furrows as though decades later he still struggles to make sense of the hatred that had led his friends, neighbors, and probably family 
to revert to such brutal behavior. When I call up that image today, I share his puzzlement. And I can't help but wonder what role Bucky Melvin played in that drama. Another even more pernicious and enduring brand of violence haunted him. He described witnessing a public lynching of a black man who'd violated the local sundown laws and how the victim's bulging eyes stared out, of his, out at his murderers even after his last mortal twitch subsided from his broken body. It was a reminder that Southern Illinois, in most ways, belonged more to the Jim Crow South than to the Yankee-dominated Midwest, where he would eventually settle. Mel retained not a trace of a Southern accent. I'm sure his strict German in-laws in Iowa cured him of that. My Uncle Fred and the rest of the Melvin clan, which we would visit on occasion, spoke with a noticeable drawl. But he retained a deep love of biscuits and gravy, and I wonder if eating them conjured up images of those accusatory eyes staring down from that tree. As I said, my dad was a gentle man, which leads me to suppose that he also was tortured by memories. The more direct lessons my father sought to teach me on those mornings often had to do with the meaning of work and life's purpose. Here, too, there was a practical d demonstration of the lesson to be learned. At some point after the sandwiches were eaten and before he had swallowed adequate amounts of coffee, uh, we, Mel and I, would have to load the stoker, a red metal box from which an auger fed coal into the firebox. Under his careful supervision, I would scoop manageable shovels of coal into the stoper, stoker tamp it down carefully with a tool specifically designed for the purpose, and clear away any of the black nuggets that might interfere with closing the stoker lid. What might be considered dirty, menial labor was done neatly and with precision. Once the stoker was filled, Mel, wearing thick canvas gloves, swung open the heavy iron door which separated us from the bowels of a white-hot hell inside the furnace. The rusty hinge squealed demonically as the rusty maw resisted his pull. He cautioned me to stand back as he artfully banked the clinkers to maintain the fire at an even and sustainable level. This he accomplished with a six-foot-long clinker grabber. Now, for the modern reader, the clinker grabber demands description. The tool was made of two pieces, an iron pipe with two claws welded to one end, and a slightly longer iron rod with a reverse single claw welded to it, so that when the rod was fully inserted into the pipe, they formed a mechanical hand with an opposable thumb. A metal loop fashioned at the other end of the rod allowed the user to open and close the claws around the clinkers, clinkers being the fused metal residual lumps produced by hot burning coal. The method for disposal of the clinkers I will reserve for a later equally interesting regression. 
With the furnace comfortably digesting its now adequate serving of coal, and my practicum complete for the day, he would return to more abstract matters concerning work. The overarching theme of Dad's lessons about work can be summed up in one simple sentence. Work at a job you like. The example of his own life made up the curriculum. He hated the mines, which he escaped by going into the army, where he served as a cook. He considered himself fortunate to have been stationed stateside during the interbellum period, but peeling piles of potatoes failed to hold his interest. He made it clear, however, that in retrospect, culinary boredom suited him better than dying in the trenches of Flanders Field or on the beaches of D-Day Normandy. Discharged honorably from the military, Bucky migrated to Fort Madison, Iowa, where he had secured a job as a prison guard, a job obtained through a military connection. Now, I've already stated that Dad was a kind and gentle man. Prison guards, he told me, were neither. He didn't last long. He uncharacteristically spared me stories of the events that prodded him to move further north to take a job at a related state institution, the Independent State Mental Health Hospital, or MHI as it was, was and is affectionately known in Independence, Iowa. That transfer was facilitated by the kindly warden at the prison, who quickly figured out that Mel wasn't mean enough or brutal enough for that job. The Independent State Hospital buildings occupied a sprawling campus a mile west of town. The complex's stately cream brick buildings with black mansard roofs belied a darker reality within. That darker reality is better expressed in MHI's original name, the Independence Lunatic Asylum. It was established in 1873 to house or imprison alcoholics geriatrics, drug addicts, mentally ill and criminally insane. A warren of limestone tunnels connected the buildings. At the time of my father's arrival, MHI served over 1,500 inmates. MHI was an economy unto itself. Patients toiled in cornfields, dairy farms, bakery, laundry, and all the other occupations necessary for the operation of this lunatic city. Dad started as an orderly on a ward for the criminally insane. He supervised a crew of men who wheelbarrowed large chunks of coal which had arrived by railroad hopper car to the mouth of a conveyor that fed a giant crusher below. He hadn't worked that job long when a patient approached the conveyor to dump his load, but instead tossed the wheelbarrow aside and dived headfirst into the crusher. The inmate's body emerged two inches thick, considerably wider than when it had entered, and punched full of holes. Looked like a minute steak, Dad said. He kind of chortled. It obviously hadn't seemed funny at the time, because Dad soon had himself transferred to the groundkeeping department. In that role, he made a lasting impact on Independence and MHI. He was tasked with planting elm trees on both sides of the boulevard that led from town to the hospital. 
By the time I was born, that mile-long cinder-covered road, coal cinders, of course, was arched over by those stately trees. Unfortunately, the trees all succumbed to the ravage of the Dutch elm disease in the 1970s. Dad managed to stay at that job for several years, even though one of his jobs involved digging graves for inmates who died without anyone to claim them. In typical Mel fashion, he had a story about that, a horror story about that too. He once had to disinter a particularly right body for a transfer to a private cemetery. I've never been able to get that smell of death out of my nose, he said. The smell of a dead person is like nothing else. The bit to, too bad Mel never turned his macabre hand to horror writing. He had a flair. While working at MHI, Bucky met my mother, Anna Schmidtkans. Her father, Henry, a German immigrant, served as head baker for nearly a half century at MHI. He was an institution. Anna worked the violent ward. She had more stomach for the unpleasantries of life than Dad. She probably could have hacked the prison guard job if she had to. Only late in life, years after Dad had died, did she disclose to me that the two of them had to elope. The Schmidkans' Orthodox Lutheranism didn't mix well with half-hearted Melvin Southern Baptist faith that Dad brought north with him. After my brother Bill was born, Bill was 17 years my elder, the two of them left MHI, and my dad knocked around at an assortment of jobs, slaughtering hogs at the Rath Packing Plant in Waterloo, short stint at working nights at a Waterloo bakery, and then working for the Buchanan County Road Crew, which included the cold and hazardous job of plowing roads in the winter. Winters were much harsher then, you know. Finally, after all those aborted careers, Mel found his bliss in that furnace room at Washington Elementary. Through this journey, he learned the simple lesson that he passed on to me. Work at a job you like. His reason for a happy life. I remember him once having his resolve tested in this regard. August Horn, the head custodian of the school district, was retiring and recommended Mel for his position. August paid Mel a visit at home one summer evening. The two graying custodians sat in the backyard smoking camels and drinking grain belt beer. I could see Mom watch them closely through the kitchen window as she peeled potatoes for supper. Nothing was said as we ate, but in my room that night, I heard their voices raised in the nearest thing to an argument, as near to a fight as I can remember them having. It had been decided. Dad had turned down the job and a significant increase in pay. Nothing more was ever said. He had found the job he liked. All the rest was commentary. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you in your work and in your play. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend.
and may you always work at a job you like.